0: Very simple kind of phrase for me. I invest in technology that accelerates the world's largest industries. This is why it's important to understand what your value is. How can you be differentiated to provide the best product, even if the market is going
1: down? They call it redundant jobs. We get, we got to do a better job. This is yeah. why.
0: We don't have people like they know they have a problem that can be solved with technology, but we can continue to talk down on people. (laughs) The way technology is going, it might start to kill a lot of these engineering jobs. You know, what's your oxygen, right? What's your competitive advantage? What got you here today won't get you to where you want to go. And as you learn, pay it forward.
1: Welcome back to Season 3 of the Generation Hustle Podcast. We are continuing our VC series in Episode 94 with Ernest Sweat. In this episode, you will learn how to provide value when building relationships, the three main problems faced by every industry, and the current economic outlook from the lens of a VC and that of a founder. Previously, Ernest focused investments at Great Point Ventures, particularly within three areas, commerce infrastructure, the built environment, and IT and data infrastructures. Prior to that ernest was a founding member at prologis ventures the venture arm of the world's largest industrial real estate owner ernest is an alumni of columbia university and earned his mba from northwestern's kellogg school of management so let's get right to it so welcome back everyone we have another special guest today ernest welcome welcome to the show
0: hey glad to be here thanks for having me
1: sweet and one thing uh we always start off with and i have to talk about this because you don't have the traditional background of most VCs. You actually come from a very small town or city, I should say, uh, in Little Rock, <laughs> all the way in Arkansas. So, you know, for our Canadian listeners, they probably don't yeah. even know where that is. But for our American listeners, we know that's in, I guess, like the middle where, you know, it's a flyover state, as we would like to call it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what about that small town life stood out to you? Because. I find it really fascinating about individuals growing up in smaller rural towns. Um, Mm -hmm. And perhaps, what do you miss about that today? Yeah. Like, how did that shape you as a person? Well,
0: I'm glad you corrected mine at first that it's a small city because we we got at least 200,000. I looked it up before we got on uh, here, and I was actually kind of surprised how small it was when I was growing up there. Um, It was still in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, But... um, what do I miss the most about it? Um, well, growing up in a small city, you can really develop a lot of community. Um, and, um, you know, that was really important, uh, the two pillars of my life. My parents are, Mm -hmm. are, are still there and, and they, um, are really community builders and what I like to call people investors. Mm. Um, I think they would have been DCs if they had come across it or, you know, it had access to the industry. Um, mother was a, a teacher for almost 40 years, um, public school teacher, and father was a CS grad uh, and worked for the state's um, Department of Workforce Development. And and he's a full-time pastor still to this oh, okay. day. And so okay. I think that piece of having community, um, you know, growing up, you get this in all places, but like, you know, knowing the rival high school and all the having friends there and, yeah. and competing and all that stuff. So I think I miss that piece. It also seems like this could be generational too, but everybody was driven internally by different things. So mm. people who wanted to be really academic or really ac- academic, people who wanted to play certain sports, played certain sports, people who wanted to just do art, did art and, um, letting it be intrinsic and not really pushed into one direction or, right. or the other is something I think is, uh, was really cool about where I grew up.
1: Yeah, no, I, I find that really fascinating because, uh, like, I'm the son of immigrants as well. And when I reflect on my parents' kind of backgrounds and where they grew up, very small little towns, um, like actual little towns, maybe like a couple thousand <laughs> individuals uh, living in those uh, areas. And their perception of how to kind of grow and that mentality was completely different versus kind of our upbringing in like a city like Toronto. Um, one, obviously, you have cultural influences kind of pushing you towards certain directions. But I, I think I find it really fascinating. They went down the more entrepreneurial route, knowing that they had little to lose in terms mm-hmm. of you know, resources, and they didn't really have that network, that background or anything. Whereas, I guess, we're more privileged in a sense where we had some of that surrounding Uh, I say, infrastructure resources available to me uh, to kind of take it to the next level. So when you reflect on that, how how did you come out of this situation where, you know, there maybe is not a lot of resources in Arkansas related to tech, uh, VC or any of that stuff. So how did you come across uh, tech or like um, the startup space when you're growing up? Um, So where did that come from?
0: Yeah, I didn't. So there's there's a growing budding like in most cities now, um, tech scene in both Little Rock and Northwest Arkansas. Uh, but when I was growing up there in the 90s, um, early 2000s, it it wasn't there. And it wasn't in my face. And so my association with small businesses was around, you know, Mr. Johnson who had a uh, tax office or, yeah. or you know, my local barber shop or Arkansas was really big on having state banks, which were kind of like little startups and that would grow in AUM to maybe a billion, two billion before there was a lot of consolidation. So I was, that was what was up in front of me. It was like, oh, I could start a bank or I could start this like small business. Um, But tech was always something that was really far off. Um, Something my dad would talk about a lot, you know, understanding Microsoft and Bill Gates. Yeah. Um, but I just always assumed those companies were always just big. And so this idea, of that's just talking about tech and startup. So this idea of like talking about venture capital, I had literally no idea. Nothing. Until yeah, yeah. I was 26. Even though I went to college in New York and still didn't know it, what it was the entire time. I don't think anybody ever even mentioned.
1: No, no, no. I'm the same, same uh, thing. <laughs>
0: same thing. <laughs> so the way I, I, I really found out about it was you know, I did a, uh, my first job out of college was in a uh, wall street. Um, and then, um, after that, I didn't want to, you know, be an equity research analyst for the rest of my life. And so I was like, okay, maybe I'll do something entrepreneurial. Maybe I'll start a company or a nonprofit or a B Corp or something like that mm-hmm. around a pain point that I see. And so as I was trying to go after an idea and start a company, um, I raised angel funding yeah and and so, after that whole company, and we can talk about that later, how um i t- just made every first time found a mistake um then I was introduced to like, oh wow, this could be what my angels did uh is actually a job and career path you can take, and so that's what made me to like even seek that of like what this ecosystem is in venture capital, and it wasn't until I was around twenty twenty sixth in business school like and actually taking courses in it and and seeking out jobs and trying to learn as much as possible, that's when I was introduced to it.
1: Yeah. And we'll get to that uh, because it's very, very inspiring, the kind of path that you took and the amount of dedication that you had getting your first role into VC. But before we get to that, um, let's let's just say I'm in a similar position, uh, very small town, uh, don't come from privilege or have little access to any of these networks that, you know, some of those individuals in VC today or say large tech come from yeah how 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 do i navigate and build a path for success
0: yeah well i think you know there's a misconception that there is a traditional path whenever we yeah. like it. you can hear thousands of podcasts of VCs you know featured on it and they'll they'll say that they have an untraditional, you know unconventional or um, non traditional path to venture i don't think there really is a traditional path to venture um, and there sure hasn't been data on which path leads to the most success. Um, you can find data on that in all these different paths that led mm-hmm. to some type of success. Um, so for somebody who doesn't, that does feel that they're the kind of like other, I would say there's a lot more resources now um, on just general information on on venture capital, right? Like I even felt compelled, you know, through my path even, you know, kind of building into open, you know, as I was attempting to get a role into venture, I would write about lessons. Or when I worked at an accelerator, I would write about lessons for founders. And so yeah, yeah, there are many, many sites, uh, including mine of my blog posts back then in 2015, 2014, 2015, that people can read. Then I think, excuse me, I think there's a lot of access to um, different types of investors, mm-hmm. and so um, people are open. There, are, there are tweet storms. Um, there are too many people that I won't start naming people this entire podcast because they all forget somebody. But there are a number of uh, you know popular Twitter handles of, of people who are junior VCs or or even um, VCs, you know, GPs that are providing information on you know how one can um, get into the industry. Um. And then I think the other piece is, you know, leveraging your network that you right. already have. Um, yeah, I think about this today earlier on, you know, one of my strategies through my path or learnings that I had was never to throw away any prior experience. Right. Because this is the one industry in which you can leverage that because technology right. is becoming ubiquitous with just business. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, you don't want to throw away experience that can help you win a deal or diligence a deal. Yeah. Um, instead of moving to the hot thing, I know when I was first mm-hmm. trying to break in, this was kind of, you know, not generative AI, but just the AI movement. Got it.
1: 2012, Got it. Yeah.
0: 2013, 2014. It was very easy for me to just say, oh, I'm just going to focus on AI and pitch myself mm-hmm. to all these funds as AI, pitch myself to all these founders and accelerators as an AI expert uh, when I might not be equipped for that. And mm-hmm. so just as you're looking at deals and trying to, to see, does this founder have founder market fit? You, as a you know aspiring investor or um, new investor, need to think about what is my market fit as an investor. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, don't throw away the experience you had because it can help with first of all the narrative that you're selling to your to to your funds that you're selling to you know you know founders as well.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think that's very powerful. And that, actually, that's like the first time I've actually heard the um, the other person's perspective, the VC's perspective of you know having that shared and understanding of your prior experiences and how to leverage that. Um, it's usually on the founder side, find, founder market fit. How, how do they, you know, uh, this whole idea of it's focused on the founder, but how do you leverage yourself as a VC to also kind of sell that persona of understanding and fitting? So I I think that's very powerful. So let's actually talk about you breaking into VC because you stay dedicated for over three years before actually getting like a legit role and kind of actually going at it full time. So I find that very inspirational. So first things first, talk to us about that path in terms of getting that first role. And then I want to understand how you were able to stay so dedicated and not give up on that journey because I know most people... If three years pass by, they probably give up by then.
0: Yeah. Well. Well. First and foremost, I think persistence is important, but you need to be this needs to be reasonable mm-hmm. persistence. It wasn't yeah, like yeah. I was I I didn't have somewhere to sleep and I, yeah, I yeah, wasn't eating yeah. like myself. So I think more importantly, um, it was about how do I manage the extra time as I have a day job mm-hmm. to pursue my my uh, my goals, and so. Um wow, where do you even start? Um, I think, you know, first was the first experiences where I got some early, as I was leaving management consulting and um, you know, pursuing venture, I had some early interviews that really kind of shaped that, okay, this is a different game. You know, everything that I learned in college and my experience on Wall Street had taught me one way to interact Um Man with potential employers, one way to interview, and this, and kind of one interview process of mostly like case studies, behavior rules, and all that yeah, stuff. very structured. Yeah. And, you know, the venture capital experience and interviewing is very similar to um, it's similar to the job. There's not as much structure there. And so you have yep. to build structure uh, um, and, and show that you can do the job you know, a, a week ago before you were even considered for being hired. Mm-hmm. And so I think the persistence for me is I was just like, I would I continue to do the gut check of what I do to do this if I wasn't getting paid. Yeah. And I felt that just so interesting. It's like, man, I, I really want to do this. I really enjoy connecting with founders. I really see how my previous experience in equity research, and this was before I, I learned about the, you know, the numerous you know, former equity research analysts um, that are now, have been in the past and that, that are now you know, prominent GPs in their field.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: Um, but I was starting to develop, and it's like, okay, wow, there's a, some foundational skills that I was developed at 22, 23, 24 that I can still use today. Um, and there's relationships. I was covering public companies in real estate, and now there's we're seeing an emergence of of real estate tech
1: in yep. all different forms.
0: Yep. And so yep. there's value I can add there because I have the relationships of like who could be potentially mm-hmm. um buyers of that technology. And so there was always learnings that I was continually getting that kept me moving forward. Of saying, "Oh, I can apply that," which I would assume yeah. is similar um, when you when you're, you know, building a concept and then you know trying to say, "Okay, I know I want to solve this problem, but all right, is there something there? Is it solved? Oh, it's not. Okay. Oh, who could I sell to? Who would be the entry point? And it keeps you keep, continue to get momentum. You raise capital. Right. You keep going. Keep going. So it was a it was a bit, it was a similar experience <laughs> like that um, of really taking."
1: kind of a design thinking
0: approach to your career in real time.
1: Got it. Got it. So, yeah. So you've, you've done that. What What's the first role uh, in VC that you got and talk about uh, and share that experience with us um, before you went to GPV. Yeah,
0: I would say the, so, well, even before that kind of like the, the role zero that I got was I, there was a number of, I was piecing together a number of accelerators and pre-seed funds oh, um, that it, you know, I wouldn't be here today if they wouldn't have taken a shot on me. Yeah, and So, you know, a lot of feedback I got from interviews was that doesn't have enough high tech experience um, because at the time there was, you know, there was really a push for product managers, uh, former product managers to join VC funds. Mm. Um, and you can see how they would be very successful yeah, at their yeah. role, especially in the, yeah. And so, um, not enough operating experience, or not enough venture experience, right? That I had And so, I went on this path of like, how do I piece together that I have the experience that I had before in equity research and even in management consulting, and so now how and me start starting that company that you know before. So how do I fill in other gaps? And so it was like, oh, I need more reps with first-time founders. Where are first-time founders? Accelerate. Um, and there was this emergence of accelerators in all over the country, in North America, that wanted access to, you know, a Bay Area I think, right? And so I was at a, a budding network. And so I was able to, um, you know, be able to, you know, sell that and provide yeah. those. And then I get the learnings, and so those were the first real real jobs, and gave me more, um, I guess, meat to talk about within my uh, for VC firms to chew on. Right, right. And so, and so, eventually, the power of your network—you never know where it can come from. Um, you know, still on this path, I ended up reaching out to a couple of my business school classmates, um, and saw that you know, Prologis was hiring. And this is, for those that don't know, it's the largest warehouse owner in the world. It's a public company. It's a REIT. And they were starting their first venture, group, corporate venture group. And so I ended up reaching out to a classmate who knew the head of the group. And he was like, oh, yeah, I know him. And and I had dinner with him last week. And so oh, wow. within that connected to me, they love the fact that I, I covered their industry. Yeah back in you know the late aughts. Yeah. Um, so I knew what a REIT was and they were like, that's awesome. And I had built this strong network of individuals that either I interviewed with, networked with, mm-hmm. you know, collaborated with, um, and they loved it. And so I set off to build out, build out their entire sourcing channels, their, uh, their thought leadership uh, approach, how they were going to actually provide value add to yeah. to companies, um, and ended up doing some great deals there. So that was that was the first
1: role. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I, I think so. What what's it like? You you, you finally get that first role. Um, you know, I would say like the experience is there. It's brand new to you, kind of yeah, yeah, coming yeah. into this space. How did you kind of frame yourself or kind of create uh, a plan, an attack plan? to ensure you're successful in the role and take advantage of the opportunity? Because I think there's a lot of individuals, early VCs, that want to make an impact, but you know they're probably just looking at Twitter, let's make a brand, whatever, let's do that kind of stuff. That might not be useful for them in terms of a tactic. So what did you do specifically to kind of help you grow and maybe some associates listening to this right now could take away?
0: Yeah, I, so she's a... This is just my opinion. And so it's going to be different for everybody. So you need to have the like, gut check of, yeah. does this fit my personality? Does this fit my talents? Um, this is, does this even fit what is the ultimate goal for my firm? Uh, because as an associate and junior investor, you're there to support the rest of the platform. Yeah, And so um, having all those in consideration for me, um, what was really important is my two management, Managing partners were legacy Prologis, and so they had um, just a small network in the VC network, uh, the VC ecosystem, and so it was Got really it. important for me, who is a natural, you know, extrovert, loves meeting people, to leverage them, and yep. so I'm not being bashful in asking for introductions to people, uh, attending every meeting that I could. Uh, that my managing managing partner set up, as well as that every event that, you know, other colleagues or peer group that were starting in 2016 as well, yeah. um, they would share as well. And so from that you have to get really good at guess and check, essentially. Um, and so not everything you go to top of funnel, just like not every company you speak to is going to be a yeah. perfect fit. yeah. Um, but you want to be able to learn from like, okay, this looks like it'll be a great event for me because I can get this out of it, or you know, this person and I, this person and myself, have developed a great rapport. I'll continue meeting with this person and and providing value, but also I get value from them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: so for me, it was about creating those sourcing channels mm-hmm. uh, and really crystallizing and testing what is my value add, and more importantly, what's for Logis is value add as a new corporate strategic investor.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I, I think you really understood kind of the pain point that they were kind of, they had, uh, and you leverage your experience, your knowledge, uh, and get, I guess your personality as well to create frameworks to enable that success. Um, and that's kind of something I always, uh, tell some juniors as well, like understand kind of the key value driver that the company is looking for. Uh, or exploring? And how do you kind of fit into that little, I say, flywheel, if you want to call it that? And how do you experiment outside of that, too? So uh, I I love your kind of approach and and making sure that kind of happened.
0: Yeah, so I kind of naturally came to it. And obviously, you know, make make mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe attend something that, you know, isn't that valuable or um, yeah, you make the whole job is about you kind of make mistakes, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, ultimately about being very self-aware, you know, and you'll learn that as you as, as um, associates become principals and principals become partners and partners become GPs is how can I be the most self-aware investor of what we can offer, uh, what I can offer and can can bring um, so that founders can sense that and understand that what type of partnership that they're really getting into. Um, that That's that's my my view i understand this is a sales job but i think what people and founders are looking for or more founders are looking for uh is that genuine you know, salesman um yeah yeah me.
1: no i totally agree with that i uh, we recently had alicio Finelli from uh, decibel on and uh he had the same philosophy it's not about like how big you're on on twitter or like that sales persona that you're kind of you have to build a brand i understand yeah, that yeah, yeah. it's a part of the game but at the end of the day, your core objective is to be that partner to that founder and enable their success. And that's what your founder is looking for. It's like, Hey, I have someone who can back me up, who can support me and can go into the weeds with me. I know they have my back. That's what they're looking for. And I, I think a lot of, you know, uh, I say newer VCs sometimes lose that sense of mind because of what's happening in social media and what they have to do in order to build a brand and they yeah. the objective around. Supporting the founder is lost. So I think, yeah, uh, I love how you mentioned like being self-aware, but also understanding like the core objective is to support the founder at the end of the day.
0: Exactly. And some people, yeah. you know, just kind of push back a little bit. Some people that is their natural talent, right? Building, a yeah,
1: plan, yeah, yeah. Right, and yeah. so they
0: can anytime they invest in a company or or you know promote a company that really helps them get more. But that's not every. It's not everybody.
1: It's not everybody. And so exactly. and so
0: it's. It, this one-size-fits-all, yes, there's basics that you need to be able to to do, but a lot of the stuff that is promoted or qualities or attributes that VC brings that are promoted are not the basics that you need to be able to, to show. What you Boy. need to be able to show is you have grit, right? that you have hustle. These are things you can't teach. Um, do you have the ability to sniff out a, a great deal do you have creative ways in which you can get to a deal um, It's not just going to be you know research and google research and and that type of stuff It's going to mm-hmm. be um, oh, I actually do know that I went to college with the, that person or my friend went to college with this person. I can get in front of them and talk to them and understand um, yeah you know what they're looking for and what type of person they are and so there's there's all these sales job you're kind of a journalist um you're a coach you're a mentor but again you know think about your favorite coach growing up if you played any sports or your favorite um you know teacher mm-hmm. in, in in grade school uh, those people were very self-aware right yeah and they and they made you feel that like your problems were as mm-hmm. as important to them uh as they were to you Um, And they knew what type of buttons to push. They weren't always the same way uh, with every problem or every student or every player.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I I actually like that because now that's kind of spins my mind trying to think about a teacher that's uh, made an impact in my life. So uh, small story here, but like um, my grade 12 economics teacher, uh, he would not bother teaching us anything related to the book. He, so his, his background was actually equities research and okay. he, he has a really strong like, economics background. And uh, what was interesting is he would never t- teach anything about the book, you know, demand, supply charts, whatever, th- th- those simple basic things. He's like, don't worry, guys, n- none of that's really applicable in real life. It's just like, obviously, it's a thought process and it works. He He started teaching about the stock market, investing and mm-hmm. really reflecting on Stuff that we're not really taught in school, but is actually valuable. And to this date, I remember like just talking to him and like, hey, uh well, uh, recently he's like, you know, because of you, I started investing early. I never would have understood this because, you know, my parents don't have that background to kind of yeah. put that on to me. And so like he's the first individual that kind of shaped our view in terms of how to be financially independent because he has three kids of his own. He's seen some mistakes as he was growing up and he's like, I don't want you guys to make the same mistakes. So it's, uh, you know, self-awareness and that kind of mentorship also has really been valuable to me. So I I love your point there because I think that's That's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. So because of him, I think like I'm in a more comfortable spot. There's a lot of learnings uh, that have come along with that. But, you know, it's just those few individuals in your life that kind of be uh, our catalyst. Right. So um yeah moving on. let's talk about your kind of current focus and thesis uh as an investor. so could you kind of share us share with us what your yeah the current approach is?
0: yeah so i um i I developed this approach as, as i am practicing what I preach, but how to leverage your prior experience and so for me i've always um whether it's public or private equity um I've always been around larger industries that have some impact on global GDP. And I've been fascinated with the emergence of new founders and technology that we've seen as far as a day-to-day consumer life and how that can have implications in some of the largest industries of the world. And so very simple kind of phrase for me is, Mm -hmm. I invest in technology that accelerates uh, the world's largest industries. And so... Uh, for me, what I've seen over the last you know, six plus years is that every industry is facing the same problems, um, and so those those three problems or trends are one: their centralized infrastructure of uh, distribution or mm-hmm. procurement is yep. being cha- challenged today. Um, two, because of that complexity and those challenges. You have more stakeholders, whether it's internal stakeholders or customers of those enterprises, is looking for transparency and speed. And three, every function, I don't care what role it is, it can be carpenter to um, ML engineer. We don't have yeah. enough people to do the work that's needed. And so all that equals up to, um, Enterprises of all sizes, SMBs to Fortune 500, are expected to do more with less resources. Mm. Yep, yep. And so, if you look at the you know the the value chain, which includes you know the process of like how do you you know get a good built, how do you you know move that good, how do you sell that good, and how do you like improve on that good? Um, I believe both for physical assets and digital assets. Um, that value chain will be start to become more and more automated thanks to technology. And so what that's led to is three you know, tech um, platforms or, or, um, or product types that I, I usually invest in. So a lot of vertical SaaS, so SaaS for large industries, uh, two uh, B2B marketplaces uh, uh, that's both for goods, Product types or uh, labor, and then the last two are for um, kind of digital assets. So, the improvement of building of software or moving data, and so that's middleware and um, no-code low-code uh, platforms. And so that's that's what I invest in, and always been on. Uh, um, although I had a range of doing some growth, I'm mostly early stage. Yeah, so usually Series A and Series B. Uh, investing and so that's what i i I, i'm very uh excited about i have learned the and seen a number of ways over the last six years where you know my lesson is like this is where you become it you know investor market fit yeah um i could have jumped to i want to even say that you you know the the hot uh industries over the last six years uh and i didn't because i didn't have a um you know, competitive advantage Mm, on that. Right. But, but I do have a competitive advantage if one of those types of technologies tries to uh, accelerate one of these foundational industries because, you know, thanks to Prologis who has a customer list to die for, I've been able to uh, develop a strong network Mm -hmm. of VPs and executives that, that buy technology in those industries. And so, I'm a strong believer that we're going to have enterprise technologies where it's at for the next 10 years. And we're going to see the most adoption of technology given those three trends that I mentioned. Yeah. Um, and we're not creating enough people for the labor force. So,
1: yeah, no, I, I actually love that because in my opinion, I am like totally into like the infrastructure side and how to kind of automate processes, workflows. Uh, and one of the things I see on a day-to-day basis with even smaller companies, not even enterprise, is how much uh, is lost in terms of one, say, manual uh, labor that has to go into things, uh, two, just like translation of data. And so it's almost just, like that feedback loop of one side's getting the wrong information, two, it's not getting processed and automated properly, um, and then it impacts the business entirely, right? Even at the small level. So I can only imagine what that looks at the uh, super like, large enterprise level and how complicated things can get. So a uh, huge fan of that approach and the other thing that you mentioned was staying disciplined to your kind of thesis and your focus because you did say you could have invested in web3 or gen i, AI. Didn't, say, I
0: didn't i didn't say one because i didn't want it they, they, i I feel that there are going to be great companies that come out of that yeah, right? yeah, yeah i don't have but i wasn't going to do it just because it looked like a great money grab or i could yeah. you know be on the i make a strong brand for myself because it was you know, open season there. Um, yeah, I want to have a thoughtful thesis. And I think that's really been inspired or I was just taught that. My first job was equity research where mm. I was writing theses, um, you know, in public and having yeah. to not only draft them, but put them out there and then get calls from those CEOs. Right, on if right, they, right, right. Probably if I got a call as president, they probably didn't like my recommendation on the on the company. But being able to defend that and not be worried if it's going to be wrong in the short term. Yeah. Uh, because again, this industry, it's kind of like baseball, right? Where, you know, like you go to the Hall of Fam- Fame if you've only been right three out of 10 times. Yeah. Uh, um, and venture, you know, if you're right one out of 10 times, yeah. but it's like yeah, the yeah, right time, uh, you'll, you'll go to the Hall of Fame. So,
1: yeah. It, it was interesting. I, I think we were on a call with, um... I think it's Daniel Tornberg for OnDeck. Um, okay. And he was, give, so I was a part of the OnDeck network. And then he's giving a speech of like, we're in 20, oh, sorry, uh, 2007, where uh, as an investor, where uh, what opportunity did you want to have? And a lot of us answer some random question or random companies or whatever. Uh, nobody said Facebook. So <laughs> it's it's just like, so he he's like, he was reflecting on his friend who's, only investment in his like VC career that panned out. Facebook. <laughs> <Yeah. his> <laughs> and so he's like, just from that one investment, he's well-known now, just because of that. And so to your point, you can strike out a lot of times, but you hit that home run, you hit that yeah. home run, right? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, so it's, it's interesting, the VC, the power law kind mm-hmm. of uh, framework that relates to it. But uh, I also uh, respect you kind of saying discipline to your approach because uh, as an investor, that's really important. So staying on the side of an investment, what is one belief as a vc that you hold that others might disagree with
0: it's a good question i think even my thesis of you know going after these large industries that some people call if you notice i haven't used the typical unsexy or old industries and stuff like that i use foundational right. and Instead of disruptive, I say accelerate because I yeah. really see these guys. I, one thing I try to use is that language that empowers, because I think we're at a position given those three trends I mentioned in all mm-hmm. these different industries, whether it's healthcare services or um, real estate or logistics, transportation, insurance. Um, these industries need to be leapfrog progress. So it's like, I call it leapfrog industry. So they need to really accelerate to that. And, you know, the fear with like disruption has always been that it can be, I don't know, assumed that it's just going to kill a lot of jobs,
1: right? Right, yeah,
0: yeah. And as I mentioned, we don't have enough people to fill those jobs. So we, we actually needed to accelerate this this automation to accelerate progress so the people that we do hire can work on do what humans do best more complex strategic things and decision making yeah um so you know i think a lot of people looking at it just say these industries are hard and they have been in the past but i i i'm left inspired because um we have new types of entrepreneurs that i think are a little bit more self-aware on how to, if they're an outsider into this industry mm-hmm. they know how to uh get the right people around them to know understand the nuances right and how to carry you know industry along with your vision instead of just starting at the north star that can be a little scary. um and then too i think there's a lot of people that either grew up in industries and have a technical background or are able to like attract techn- t- technical talent or they're a combination and kind of these unicorns where it's like, yeah, I grew up in construction, my parents are, you know, a construction firm and yeah. and I went to MIT. And so um I'm left inspired by that foundry prototype or archaeotype. Right. And the timing is just whatever you used in the past, whether it's throwing consulting dollars at it or uh building within, those are providing diminishing return. So yeah. yeah. Um for these industries, for these kind of captains of industry to remain for the next 10, 20, 30 years, they have to adopt more technology.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree with your sentiment there. And let me ask you an open-ended economic question then. Um, So Naval, uh, I'm pretty sure you're very familiar with him. He was on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast and he mentioned this idea of if everyone were to take on hard sciences, like computer science or chemical engineering, whatever it may be, the world would be significantly better in like a short period of time. We we talk about this idea of not having enough roles uh, in Uh these specific um, industries or technological spaces to advance Uh um, that said industry. Um, What are your thoughts on, say, grassroots infrastructure and trying to promote more of this? Um, Or do you feel like it's not something that we should kind of portray on, to others just because they might have, not have that interest yeah. uh, from a schooling perspective. What, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Very philosophical. I think um, there, are, there are a number of questions like this, that the, it needs to be a two-pronged approach. We need mm-hmm. to increase the, the pipeline, that's one approach. But there's usually um, some underserved or under-acknowledged pipeline or talent that could be already doing this. And so I think taking both approaches of like, yes, having grassroots, but also seeing who maybe has an interest but never had any access to being an engineer, how that could be available. I'm a little hesitant on some like one-size-fits-all approach always. I'm just like natural skeptic when it comes to that. Given points you made about like maybe somebody didn't have an interest in that, yeah, in coding, um, but also unless like where things are going, as much as we talked about technology with, um, and I'll use their language, not mine, but like they would uh, kill jobs in all these industries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the way technology is going, it might start to kill a lot of these engineering jobs
1: too. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: You know when you think of where generative AI can go, and when there's like a yeah, you know, language is so tough, even though there's been some advances with generative AI and we've seen with open has done. Um when there's a formulaic syntax and coding, yeah. that
1: they can
0: anticipate it, that's an opportunity, right? Yeah. That's a, that's exact. easier than our, you know, analyzing our conversation today right now. Yeah. We're using we could be using slang. I have an x, we have accents
1: and stuff Yeah, like yeah,
0: that. yeah, yeah. Um so that's why I'm a little hesitant there, but obviously, yeah, we need, we need more, more people. And we're going to need more people to continue to extract, uh, abstract complex, complexities in whether it's building software or, you know, processes for the, you know, the real world.
1: So, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Uh, And I think one approach that um some of the canadian governments taking with some of these redundant they call it redundant jobs uh due to technology we, uh
0: we c- we gotta do a better job this is yeah. why we don't have people like like they know they have a problem at,
1: at their yeah. company
0: that can be solved with technology but we can continue to talk down on people like i don't know yeah we got to yeah. come on
1: yeah so it, it, it's, it's always a common theme of like redundancy and whatever but uh they, they've actually established like grant programs where it's completely free to work in like, say, a coding field or security or one of okay. these kind of cross transferable skill kind of fields. So they might take some of those sales skills that they had in like an industry that might be dying out, apply it to some other kind of technological role uh, that they can apply. So there there has been some investment. I don't know. I don't have the numbers of how successful that's been in terms of them being kind of put into the work uh workplace. But yeah, I wanna see more encouragement of uh advancement, but also in the right way, not in the sense that, you know, we kill jobs and just make force people to do things because that's the only available thing to do. Right. There has to be some other opportunities out there. Right. So yeah. that feels yeah. like
0: nineteen eighty four or um <laughs> right. the Jetsons, right? Where they just yeah. like work for Pushing buttons, working for thirty. Exactly, to exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: We still want to have fulfillment in our life, right? So um, we don't want to be one of those just again that just click a button, that's it kind of thing. Um, so now let's kind of move on to uh, the current macro environment. So I'm going to separate these questions into two things: one as a VC, two as a founder. So the first one, let's stick to the VC. Uh, for many VCs, this is their first time ever experiencing a downturn. Right? We've known that. It's pretty much been a nice little uptick market, uh, get into an investment. And even the last two years, valuations were gone crazy and things were all over the place. Now we've seen interest rates go up, uh, LPs kind of had call, callbacks and all these kind of things are, are happening. And a lot of VCs are experiencing this for the first time. Given your knowledge and maybe experience from chatting with others, what yeah. are your best pieces of advice, uh, advice to kind of handle this kind of downturn that we're facing? And how do you leverage, again, maybe some of your core competencies as a VC to maybe make this into an opportunity?
0: Yeah, for a lot of you know, this cohort of, of VCs, they've never experienced this. Mm-hmm. Um, some not have I've never experienced this in their career. Um, I started working in 2007, uh, summer of 2007. So I got a gut punch immediately. Yeah, yeah, with, yeah. It's like on, on Wall Street, right? And so there were companies that have been around for a hundred years, six months after I started, that were no yeah, longer around. So that sobers your approach to what a career can offer and what the economy can offer. Uh, but if I go back to that experience, um, and the biggest learnings that I got was this is what's this is why it's important to understand what your uh value is. -hmm. Um to your customer. Understand what they need and how can you be differentiated to provide the best product even if the market is going down? Um, this is when I was an equity researcher. Right. And so um those core lessons is is applied here too. So who are your customers? Your founders and your LPs? How can you continue to provide them great value? Um, And so I think, you know, from a number of individuals and colleagues and peers I've spoken to um, having a lot more touch points with their LPs to understand, and, you know, provide, hey, how they're seeing the market. Big questions people have, is there still a disconnect in valuation expectation? Yeah. Which, you know, based on if it's growth versus early stage versus pre-series A, you know, there's different discussions on that. Yeah, yeah. And then founders, being able to really lock in and, and and see, you know, how can we help these founders? And it's going back to like the, it's not easy work, but like yeah. going back to the best coaches I've ever had in my life. Knew how to, knew how individually us 12 had different personalities and how we could be inspired or um, derailed right. by different um, um modes of, of coaching and yeah. so you have to apply that it's hard work but understanding that specific founder where they are at and who they are what do they need yeah um and so you know if it's i don't know if this it's comforting or um inspiring to discouraging or aspiring to to you know younger vcs but um there's a pretty low bar on that and so yeah if you're able to actually show that early off in your career you're going to do all right right in this industry mm-hmm. um so i think i think that's that's the focus like lock it and then for net new investments that's just where having a thesis right so, you know if you go and continue to chase whatever is hot is hot yeah. you might be too late right?
1: yeah yeah um I don't know. so yeah yeah so just being rational around kind of your approach and one maybe utilizing individuals that have gone through this experience getting some yeah. support help um and then just taking a more of a critical view on macro and how how did that impact me in my role specifically and yeah how do i help my founders out at the stage right yeah. so speaking of founders it, it, oh yeah go well,
0: ahead. well listen and, and then understand this is a long-term mm-hmm. job mm-hmm. right there are far more other jobs in which you can get wealthier a lot faster right and so taking that long view approach is that like this is going to be the first of a few downturns and so how can I learn from this how can I see this as opportunity because I still know and trust what I'm looking for and so I'm going to find other great founders uh, that are doing that
1: yeah because there's always value created in whatever cycle that we're in and I think again, finding that value, well, however you define your value, is important. And it's, like, to your point, uh, there's always going to be opportunities, but it just takes a, a rational approach rather than irrational and chasing uh, yeah. things or having this fear. Um, so, there is a, there is going to be, uh, I guess, a positive sentiment once we get out of this trough. And then, yeah. uh, hopefully, we see that uptick again. But, you know, God knows when that's going to happen. So, yeah, we let, let's, Sooner than later, but yeah, you know, right now it's, uh, it's a bit tough on everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of which, and let's look at the flip side. Yeah. So we talked about the VCs and kind of how they should approach this. But founders are significantly impacted by this. Uh, one, from a the macro level, fundraising is kind of being squeezed out a little bit. Um, not as much capital available to them. Two, a lot of companies that they might have been selling to before have kind of closed their budgets off so they're not really investing in said b2b software or whatever you're kind of selling and then three they've had to make tough decisions around cash conservation and letting people go so Mm -hmm. a lot of tough decisions to be made a lot of things impacting them what is your piece of advice for founders today in terms of making the most of the current scenario that they're in and how should they kind of again rationalize uh, and kind of create a attack plan to survive, but perhaps also succeed.
0: Having a you know these tough conversations, I think, and the ability to, you know, really look yourself and your company in the mirror and say, okay, where are and what are the likely, what's the base, mid, and uh, best case scenarios, mm-hmm. um, and worst case scenarios, right? Um, and try to optimize. For that base, but having decision points and KPIs that you're looking to get that can help you make the the best decision of what path to go for. But it, it you know it's similar to what I said about from the other side of the table with VCs, You know who are your customers, and so you know I can do a laundry list of all the issues that, especially if you are a enterprise or B two B, you know founder tech founder. Um, there's a lot of consolidation, yeah, you know, right? You might be selling to big companies, small companies, and they're all like, like humans, you know, and citizens who are experiencing or worried about a recession, they're they're cutting costs to the essentials. So, are you a P one uh, priority mm-hmm. for your customer base? And if you're not, how do we get there? Right. Um, and do you, are you angling to profitability you know that's the word that we kind of forgot
1: yeah uh, yeah over the last couple years over the last couple, last, years, the
0: last couple of years yeah um but that's important too because there's multiple exit paths that change founders and employees lives you know financially that aren't just all ipos um yeah whatever those are <laughs> they'll come back <laughs> but um I I think the core is like having a key you know, understanding of like, how do we gut it out and get to, I know we were angling for a hundred percent growth a um, year, but if we can just hit 30, <laughs> hit 40 every month um, consistently um, and retain our customer base. Yeah. And we're, we're getting more dollars than we're spending. I think, yeah. You, you'll be fine. I know that conventional advice last year was just like, everybody stay out of the market until 24 or 25, but not mm-hmm. all companies have that, you know, yeah. even at the later stages. Yeah. And so putting yourself in the best position of like, uh, yeah. an acquisition or, you know, just best position to keep going and surviving. Yeah. That's what you want to do. Um, Because and then the last thing I would say is having an understanding of what's your likelihood on valuation for the next round that you you raise, yeah. Um, And you can get that by asking other people. Asking definitely should be if you are have already raised capital, asking your current investors what they're seeing and what their their friends who do later rounds are seeing. Yeah, Um, because I think we're kind of at a standstill right now especially in the later stage, Series B, Series yeah. C, kind of no man's land.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's, uh, I know Series B and C have taken a hit and uh, I'm exploring that with a couple of my clients and it's uh, been pretty stale in terms of feedback and uh, receiving uh, calls back in terms of just investment or even meetings. Yeah. Um, so like, for the, let, let's just say it's an earlier stage company, maybe Seed, Series A, going into yeah. B, or, B or A. Um, they maybe have raised recently and we know the last two years valuations were nearly at their peak. So what would you say to a founder who is now facing a potential down round, meaning higher dilution of their percentage of equity or a flat round? Like, it doesn't make sense for them to obviously continue. Obviously, VCs are invested. We all want to see them succeed. But there is a point where, you know, individuals lose motivation if there's little to nothing left for them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think any syndicate that, that joins and even if there is a down route, um, they should be mindful of that too. And the current investors should be pushing for like there is, you know, people have different metrics on what they think motivates people. Right. Uh, and that they don't see, but like whatever that agreed, you know, water level is, that that's what it should should be. We should be yeah. mindful of that. Uh but a flat round for like if you raised a ton from You know, at high valuation in twenty twenty or twenty twenty one, you should probably be thankful, especially if you haven't seen the natural growth in your uh, ARR um, that you know we've expected in kind of the twenty sixteen to twenty eighteen timeframe. Um, so you know, being open to it and ultimately, you know, having that discussion with yourself of do you want a larger percentage of zero or do you want a large number that you know of, of an actual like exit opportunity about which so
1: yeah so it's a, i guess a bit of both in terms of feedback reflection kind of how a founder sees themselves in terms of optimizing their um position within the company or that kind of thing right so yeah more personal reflection you'd say on well, the
0: valuation part yeah yeah um yeah but you know you got a lot of business too like have you fed enough people uh, yeah. um, uh, if that's the route that you, you need to take hopefully you haven't had to cut anyone yeah um, but making sure that you're an efficient um, uh, operation so once yeah. you do raise that more capital because there's a lot of talent that's looking um, that has a guarantee that you know hey if we make it to this you'll at least have this amount of capital I think yeah. that um that startups will be put in the prime position for some talent.
1: Yeah, no, totally agree with you. Um, So we alluded to this earlier in our uh, chat, and it's about the foundations of building relationships and how critical they are. So how do you define, say, a trusted peer? And then are all relationships built on providing value?
0: Um. That's a great question. It takes time, to be quite honest. And I know that's not a great answer. <laughs> no. uh, all right. So, yeah, it's not even that satisfying answer to me, but you'll see over time of those are trusted peers. Now, there are different, you know, you did on deck, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So, like, there are organizations that filter or like, you know, that people fly and agree to that. But the reason why you're able to develop trusted Peers or partners, there is because everybody's making a commitment. Right. Right. To an organization. Right. Like I get that out of Kaufman. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, mm-hmm. it takes time to see when it's just a normal business transaction, normal catch ups, who will eventually be that. And mm-hmm. so you have to keep tabs of that. Right. Um, but the value piece. I don't know. That's a tough question. Do you always have to have that? Because I know that, you know, for trusted mentors and and stuff like that, I I don't have much, I don't think I have much value to them. Um, But if what I think is that I, I don't know, maybe the person sees something in me, Right. they see that I'll pay it forward and I have paid it forward. Yeah, um, and they ultimately want to see me be successful, and so yeah. I think in those mentor mentee relationships, you don't have to, and then even some peers, right? But understanding if you have a mind frame that this is a long term relationship, this job is only going to be is all about long term relationships.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Then you're not you're not counting. Right. Like, right. And and points. I'm like, ah, they haven't reached the point level yet for me to consider them a, um, a real peer.
1: Yeah. No, I I agree with that. And I think one of the things I've learned through networking, it's not the quantity of individuals, you know, it's the quality of that individual that you potentially know. And so like, I've had this like reversed philosophy now before it was like, go to all the events, meet as many people, (laughs) try to make as many friends. Now it's like really specific in terms of understanding who's there. Um, not to not not in the sense that we have to be transactional, but in order to build a fruitful relationship, I think you got to start somewhere. And so how do I kind of provide that value? So I'm, all, I'm much more logical around kind of um, the individuals I consider like a trusted peer or a mentor. <laughs> Whereas in my past, past time, it was just like, I know you, I know you, I know you, but you can't really build that kind of uh trust your relationship right so yeah. that's that's the thing there um and so that's um that's basically the bulk of the podcast there ernest uh one thing that we want to end off with is a lightning round so we have okay. four quick questions and let me know what you want when you get started okay we can do that now all right cool uh favorite book of all time
0: i am um, man that's a great
1: question shit <laughs> Stumping you a uh, lot today. This,
0: yeah, there's so many like, books that I love. Um, uh, uh, one that I'm reading right now, like, is The Power right. of Now.
1: Okay. Okay. I'll I'll have to put that on my list. I haven't uh, heard of that one. Uh, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would that be? President Obama. Okay, cool. We've had that many times. So it uh, <laughs> seems to be a favorite um what technology are you most excited about not generative ai
0: (laughs) i am that that does seem pretty cool um i'm just really excited about we've had these first generations of companies that have been tech enabled services and they've increased the adoption of technology all around them in their industry Mm -hmm. so i'm really excited about about a ton of um middleware and connectors Uh, so we can build more pure software applications in some of the biggest industries in the world.
1: Yeah, sweet. No, that sounds cool. And last question here, controversial, but uh, do you like pineapple on your pizza? Yes or no? I don't mind it. Like if it's there
0: and it's- Give me a yes
1: or no, man. No, I'm not. (laughs) All right, cool, 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 cool. We're on the same side. I I, I don't fly that way either. uh, Fruit don't belong on pizza, you know what I mean? So uh, it's not my thing. As so uh, cool, man. Ernest, thanks so much for doing this. Any last words and uh, where, where can uh, individuals find you?
0: There's going to be interesting times. I, I tell people all the time that like, I, can't use, um, like I can't use unprecedented anymore because I've been using it for the last five years. Yeah. Um, but this too shall pass. And so using this time to really hone in on you know, what's your oxygen, right? What's your competitive advantage? You know, what got you here today won't get you to where you want to go. And so continually think about that. And as you learn, pay it forward. That's the best, yeah. best of it. Love um, that. If people can find me on you know, LinkedIn, my name, and then Twitter, um, I sometimes tweet.